and we're live. Welcome back for yet another episode. Thank you for sticking with us. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. But without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. James Tarr, introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers, please. Uh, okay, this is James Tarr, uh, author. Uh, I guess for the last 20 years, I've been a professional writer, uh, mostly uh, nonfiction articles, but I've got uh, nine novels and a nonfiction book out as well. Um, I'm not sure how much detail. I'm not sure how much detail you need. That works. That works. Uh, so the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. So I was actually scrolling through the Facebook, the uh, the Insta, the author book side of, of Facebook, looking at cool covers and drooling over what books I was going to buy, and I saw the book cover for the what we're interviewing today, and my inner three year old had to have him on for the show because who doesn't like dinosaurs? Um, were you a dinosaur fan as a kid? Uh, what boy wasn't a dinosaur fan as a kid? Everybody thinks that, uh, the current craze started with Michael Crichton, but, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote The Lost World in 1912, I think, about going to South America and, uh, having adventures with dinosaurs. So it's, I think it's in the DNA. Yeah, there was a show that came on British television, and it was in the UK, and I'm drawing a blank on what it was called, but there was a, back in the early 2000s, that was sort of um, time, zone, uh, time rift with dinosaurs that were coming through. Oh, I'll, I'll find the name of it and link it in the show notes. I, I know what you're talking about. I can't, I, I want to say it starts with an E, but I could be completely wrong on that, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And then there was Terra Nova, which was cut critically short. And like I say, Fox uh, Entertainment's where all good shows go to die. Well, have you seen on uh, Family Guy, there is a bit where Peter Griffin talks about how, well, they Fox would have to cancel all of these great shows before they would air uh, this one. And it's a list of every single show, sci-fi and fantasy, that Fox had cut over the years, including Firefly and Terra Nova and everything else. And it was just it's hilarious and sad all at the same time. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, in my version of Hell, it's Gail Berman who canceled Firefly is going to be the devil. <laughs> Yeah, well. Oh. Um yeah, it's uh it's it's dinosaurs are something I'm sort of obsessed about in, in a totally healthy way, people. Uh so I saw that and I was like, Yeah, you, you sold me. But uh before we get started, we have to do it. We have to ask you the religion question. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? That is really tough because I'm a, a child of the seventies and eighties, so I grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek. My mother took my brother and I out of school to see the first showing on the first day of The Empire Strikes Back, sixth grade. Uh, which that I mean, if nice. if you get into if you get into heaven as a cool mom, uh, that that will do it. Um, 
However, both Star Wars and Star Trek have been besmirched uh, by by recent events. So I think I'm going to say Firefly. It, it, it suffered an early death, but maybe that's what kept it pure. Maybe. Uh, and I just did a quick Google while I was thinking about it because it bugged me that I couldn't remember. And it was the show was primeval. There was a British version and a Canadian version. And it ran from, at least one of them ran from 07 to 2011. Uh, but I binge watched that whole thing. It is amazing. Unfortunately, it's one of those shows that they never really gave a proper ending. Um, but it was definitely an amazing show. So if you if you like Dinosaurs People, you've probably missed it. But it is amazing and you should check it out. It was on Netflix when I watched it. So for whatever that's uh, worth. And uh, your mom definitely wins cool points for taking you to the opening. Was she a fan too or she just knew you would like it? No, I mean, people forget, or you're too young to realize that back then, this was pre-VCRs, really. It was pre-cable, really. So you talk about the buildup. It had been three years uh, since Star Wars had come out. And uh, all the only thing you could do is maybe go watch Star Wars again if they re-released it in the theater or listen to the um, the the radio version i believe there was a radio version of star wars that i think the bbc had that my brother had on vinyl but other than that it had been three years of build-up that we had been waiting for that show and she knew just how much we really wanted to see it so that was uh like the greatest thing ever outstanding so I can't imagine some of those shows having to wait that long. We've sort of gotten spoiled in the binging era of Netflix and all the other streaming services. So the idea of waiting years between whatever is just, I don't know that I would remember all the cool stuff that I wanted to come back to if I had to wait that long. Yeah. And so. I mean, my, my kid, I've got uh, grown sons, semi-grown sons, and they, I, I was talking to one of them recently and I used the word rerun and they had never heard it before because they've never had to suffer through reruns during the summer. So. Oh, the off season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although I'm not complaining about progress being made. The other side of that though, is they don't always know whether it's going to be a hit or not. And so you do get more complete loops because they assume it's going to be. Sometimes those get cut short on the larger arcs, though, because they thought, oh, well, this is going to be popular. We'll have time. And they don't have time. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Stargate Universe. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, oh, boy. They had that planet with dinosaurs there, too. Just saying, yeah. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Stargate Universe. Uh, uh, I like th that. I believe that is a superior product to Stargate Atlantis. But uh, unfortunately, I think it was too dark, and that's why it got canceled. Yeah, and they promised us an ending after the second season that we were going to get a third. And when they finally did it, they said, oh, well, go watch or go buy this um, graphic novel and we'll give you the conclusion that you, we, we couldn't put on screen. So I rushed out, little, you know, grubby hands full of my money. Uh, and I bought that graphic novel, and those things aren't cheap, and another cliffhanger, and no next volume. So even when they had the opportunity to give us an ending, the mofos gave us a cliffhanger. I'm just like, really? Oh, not that I'm still bitter or anything. <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah, so <I> because, 
<laughs> and because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Conan the Barbarian? Oh, dude, please. Uh, again, you're talking to a child of the 70s and 80s who saw Conan the Barbarian live in color in the theater when I was... 13, 14. So Conan the Barbarian all the way. Plus, I, I before that, I had read all the novels by Robert E. Howard. So Conan. I am going through the, the you know, when funds get tight and you got to tighten your belt, buying a lot of new books is a, is a limitation. So you're very, um, how shall we say, you jealously guard the few, the few dollars you can spend on what books, which is why as an author myself, like I, I'm very appreciative when people buy mine. Having said that, I've been using the library's uh, um, ebook um, rental or checkout, whatever they call that, and I've been mm -hmm. going through some of those classics. And yeah. it's it's interesting how, like, the way we present stories has changed so much, and how much shorter some of the novels that we think of as novels were back then. Yeah, well, it just. Especially if you're talking about sci-fi or fantasy, especially fantasy these days, it's not considered a proper novel until it is so thick it might stop a bullet. And the fantasy novels are just yeah. and George R. R. Martin is 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 just the, the latest in that, you know, and then you've got Harry Potter and those those books are so long that people forget that a traditionally a novel is anything uh 75,000 words and and over and co compared to modern fantasy novels uh 75,000 words is nothing actually uh i want to say it was the hugos that set the standard in 40,000 is technically a novel Okay. All right. Well, the, the you depending on who you, who you go to, they will argue that uh, what novel length is because I've always heard anything shorter than seventy five or around forty is a novella. But uh, you can't get uh, people to agree on anything these days. <laughs> oh, I just because while we're talking, I was curious and I did a quick Google search. And there were 27 different organizations that swear that their list of what's the difference between uh, flash fiction, uh, short story, novella, novelette, novel. Like they've got different numbers so all over the map. I'm just like, did somebody just like, you know, smoke a little something, something and then just throw numbers out of all? Because there is no rhyme or reason to it. But you're right. I think if you did probably shorter than 75, people are going to feel like you cheated them. Yeah. So. Well, even even 75. It, I mean, that if you want to consider that a full length novel these days, uh, that is that's the the length of the first Harry Potter novel. And uh, that is so much shorter than the subsequent novels in that series that people f forget that nobody knew if the first novel was going to be a success. And uh, and so as a result, it was uh, relatively brief. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's all over the place. It's really, it evolves with reader expectation. And the latest in the long fantasy novels is uh, Brandon Sanderson with his doorstops that uh, <laughs> could double as a home defense weapon if you, if you buy the paperback or the hardback. Um, yeah. So, but I, I, I've never actually read um, Sanderson. So I don't know how much of, are they really that long or has it just become a meme among authors we know? I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, but, uh, eventually I'll get around to it. So many books, so little time, 
So you mentioned, you know, you were a child of the 70s and the 80s. And so you read a lot of the classics or what we call classics now. Have you revisited any of those novels as an adult? Um, yes. Um, yeah. And I, uh, it, it, it depends, you know, some of the, the ones you hate to, to reread too often, but, uh, within the past couple of three years, uh, I've reread, uh, uh, Tolkien's Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I've reread Dune, uh, prior to the movie coming out, uh, about six or seven years ago, I reread water, reread Watership Down, which is just a fabulous novel. And if, if any of your listeners haven't read that, I highly recommend it. Uh, it it's just a, a gorgeous novel about uh, sentient rabbits, of all things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thrown anything away. I'm sitting here in my office and my bookcase is right beside me, and I've got everything from the original Ian Fleming novels to the Robert E. Howard Conan novels to all the early Stephen King, and um, uh, and then I, I went through a very long uh, mystery thriller phase. So I've got uh, the um, uh, Alistair MacLean and uh, Robert B. Parker Spencer novels. Uh, you name it, it's up there from the 70s, 80s. All of the Alan Dean Foster movie tie-ins, which he every, every science fiction and fantasy movie that came out in the in the 80s, I think he did a uh, a, a book tie-in on that, and I bought all of them. Okay, so I'm uh, working my way through them. I'll get there eventually. Um, but we here at the Blasters and Blades love both the fantastical and the scientific. So what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Um, sci-fi. Uh, I, I, well, see, I, I don't know if I can pick one because I, I, growing up, I spent so much time reading. I read everything. I read everything and I was re I read the the hobbit and the lord of the rings in fourth grade and dune in fifth grade so i uh i bounced back and forth i i read everything so i guess my but i guess my love i loved science fiction more because you had star wars and star trek which they are far from hard science fiction they're they're space operas and practically fantasy in space but uh um, I read a lot of science fiction back in those days. And, and back then, actually, trying to find good fantasy was tough. You had a few standout authors, but the luminaries of that day were, most of them seemed to be writing science fiction. Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, and the like. Okay. So what was your first memory of speculative fiction? Was it, you know, any specific book, game, uh, cartoon? I, my, I guess my, I know I've read speculative, uh, fiction before, but I remember specifically reading, um, it, when I was 12, A Sound of Thunder 
which is the short story that gave rise to the saying butterfly effect. And that, you know, that just stuck with me because the, the idea that you could go back in time millions of years and accidentally step on an insect and it would change everything in the present really resonated with me. And it made me think, you know, That is a beautiful thing about speculative fiction is it makes you think. So speaking of, what is it you love about speculative fiction? I just said for me, but what is it for you that speaks to you about that larger umbrella genre? Well, the the beauty of reading books as opposed to visual entertainment is they present to you a story in words that your, your brain then turns into pictures. But with speculative fiction, it's not just that. It's they are presenting ideas to you that make you think, that make you think about what's there in the story and also what could be coming next. Or uh, they may present um, moral quandaries or just situations that you had never considered before and they sit back it, it makes you sit back and view new things view view common things in ways that you've never thought of before or just consider completely new ideas that you never even uh you know were never even on your horizon okay that's a good answer so how did your love of speculative fiction, both reading, watching, and all of that, transition into you deciding to tell stories yourself in that space? Well, I've been writing since since grade school. I remember writing the Godzilla stories, you know, uh, back, back in the old classic Godzilla days. But um, I've always loved telling stories but I, I really, I really, because I have a background in professional, on the professional writing side of writing technical stuff that has to be realistic and accurate, when it, when it came time to, to write some, some fiction, you know, I've written some detective thrillers because I spent most of 20 years as a private investigator in and around Detroit, where I, I knew what that was like, as opposed to watching Simon and Simon and Magnum PI on TV, which is nothing what like a, what a real private investigator does. And so, but the, the trick is always to uh, make the story entertaining while also being realistic. And so when it came time to uh, I, again, uh, BCRE dinosaurs, uh, it's I thought that the the Crichton novels were fabulous, but there was a lot of untapped potential there that was just being ignored by the the movies, which were all, you know, shut your brain off at the door. And so you look at how the audience is being underserved and you figure out a way to give them some entertainment in a fashion that is 
accurate and realistic. And if it's set in the near future, you have to kind of sit down, sit yourself down and think, okay, if it's in the future, if X is going on now, what would be happening then, which that's, it's, it's fun and fabulous. It's a great thought exercise, thinking exercise. And then being a writer, you get to then write it all down in story form for the entertainment of other people, hopefully. Okay. So many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that you think shaped you as a storyteller? Oh, we could, uh, we could honestly sit here for an hour. Um, I'm a lot older than I ever thought I'd be as a kid. Uh, but I, I honestly think that, uh, Boring lives create boring people. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I have had a very interesting life. Uh, the, that is not a Chinese blessing. That's a Chinese curse. So um, uh, just having all sorts of uh, interesting, uh, good and uh, bad things happen to me and family members in my life has very much uh, uh, affected me and sent me in certain ways in my life. Uh, I've, I've worked as an armored car driver and a police officer and a private investigator. And so when I first started writing, I ended up writing thrillers uh, based in where, you know, starring uh, people in careers that I was familiar with in, in the Detroit area, which I'm after driving around the, the mean streets of Detroit for the better part of two decades, I, I knew very well. So uh, they say, write what you know. And luckily I've, I've had an interesting and varied life. So I'm able to uh, explore that uh, in print. Okay. Speaking of your, your bio, you just mentioned that you uh, were law enforcement for Gotham city. So we ask all of our <laughs> authors that wore the uniform um, this question, but how do you feel like your time in uniform affects the way you tell stories? It, not just in uniform, but a, a lot of people, for good or bad, they they live in a bubble and they are never affected by the by the bad things out there but they are entertained by reading about bad things happening to good people and uh, figuring out a way to be, to write about bad things, you know, or, or the apocalypse, whatever, in such a way is that that's both entertaining and, uh, accurate is is a challenge but that's i i get that from working in in law enforcement and part of working as a private investigator i uh i spent uh, a little while as a process server mostly delivering restraining orders to people which is which is interesting and you do those kinds of jobs and you meet the most interesting people and i, I i'm I've got a great imagination, but when you meet 
amazing, interesting, crazy, smart, stupid, fabulous, weird people as part of your everyday life. When your imagination fails you, you just go off memory, which that's that's one of the great things about uh, having a interesting background at some point when you've got that that vapor lock that writer's block you're like well have i have i ever met anyone that that would uh, whose character would would fit here and uh and i usually have okay so do you regularly draw from people you knew when you were in the um that side of line of work because obviously besides being a uniformed officer you did it on the private side do you draw on those experiences like for people when you write your novels? Sometimes I do. I, um, or the people that I've met, they, because I've met such a wide range of people that have done just a wide range of things in their life. It's, it's provided me a, a great resource for, uh, asking them questions to find out if I've never done that job, what that actual job is like, um, you know, writing for a number of outdoor magazines uh, and, and gun magazines, and then having the background that I have is let me um, meet all sorts of amazing, interesting people. I, I know three people who have worked for the CIA. I mean, who knows, people who've worked for the CIA and I know three of them thanks to the other stuff that I've done. So if I oh, ever cool. want to write a, a spy thriller, I know people that I can go and talk to off the record about certain technical details. And that way I don't necessarily have to invent uh, certain things. I can just ask people who are there who can at least guide me in the right direction, which is just a, just fabulous. Okay. Does your time, so we talked about how your time doing that kind of work is in the law enforcement sphere affects the way you tell stories. Does it affect the way you engage with content? You hinted on it a little bit when you talked about Magnum PI, but does it change the way you view uh, entertainment material? Um, the, well, the, not so much that, that job, the, the way I got really good well, well, the way I, I learned how to write was by reading, consuming everything. And the more you read, the more well-read you are, but also you get a little bit more discerning to figure out what's good, what's not, what you like, what you don't. And, uh, you know, tastes change over the years. I, I, I moved away from sci-fi and fantasy into mysteries and thrillers. And then uh, over the years that I moved back, and as you as you get miles under the tires and years under the belt, you have a little bit different uh, life experience. That, so you go back and reread some of those stories that you read as a kid, and then you see things or pick up things that you completely missed when you were younger. Um, and so the the the. I, I, the the jobs the, the the job police officer and private investigator it's great background for when you sit down to write but it it, it didn't really turn me into a writer it just helped make me a better writer i guess 
But no, but does it change the way you view content as the consumer? So when you read other people's books, watch the shows. Oh, I know what you're games. saying. Oh, does yes. It it's it's completely ruined so many things for me. I it, Whenever I, I can hardly even read novels about private investigators these days because I see so much so many things that are wrong and inaccurate and just completely unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you mean, but yes. Um, and watching, especially like watching police procedurals on TV, I, I can't do it because there's just so many things wrong in it that uh, I can't even sit down and watch it for mindless entertainment purposes. So it, it's it, the, having that background has, has informed me as a, as a viewer and uh, it, it, not necessarily in ways that I, that I like it, it is, it has affected my uh, enjoyment of a lot of things. Yeah. I find I can't watch anything with guns in it without counting. And I'm like, eh, he doesn't have that many bullets on that, that, you know, magazine or whatever. Well, just not letting it bother you. Like I am a huge uh, John Carpenter fan and he's made so many fabulous uh, action sci-fi movies from the eighties, but all of the firearm stuff in all of his movies is completely technically inaccurate, whether it's they live or big trouble in little China whatever uh it's uh completely technically inaccurate but it doesn't matter it 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 really doesn't hurt your enjoyment of the of the the movie generally but uh those are maybe because those are classics and i didn't know any better when i first saw them now these days if i if i see stuff in in new tv shows or movies or or even read it in books uh, because of my background. I can't read. Uh, in fact, most of the guys that I, that I work with on, on various different gun magazines can't read any of Lee child's Jack Reacher novels anymore because everything's wrong in it, in them when it comes to guns, the, it, it, that just ruins the, the novels, which is sad because Lee child is a fabulous author but uh, apparently he doesn't even care to do any research on firearms technicalities because he just makes all of that stuff up for, for his books. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> so <laughs> let's transition away from the writing side and talk about things from a fan angle. Um, I know because we talked in the pre-show as, as prep for this, that you haven't gotten any cool fan art or cosplay yet. But how do you think you'll react the first time you see that? I, I just think that would be very cool. I, um, I've, I've received, I guess it's fan art. It's just one of those weird things that happens in life. I, uh, for a long time, I, I drove a Toyota FJ Cruiser, which is a very kind of sci-fi funky looking vehicle and it had a firefly sticker on the back window and uh i came back to my car one day 
and there was a, a piece of paper stuck under the windshield wiper. And I'm like, oh, God, somebody backed into me. But I pulled the paper out. And what it was is somebody had seen the side, the, the firefly sticker on the back window and had drawn a uh, caricature of, of Kaylee from the show and uh, wrote, wrote uh, you can't take the sky from me, which that, that just how hard that hit me. <laughs> um, I know if anyone ever does that for any of my products, I'm just going to be floored. Yep. I, I feel that. Has anyone asked for your autograph yet? Uh, yeah. Um, and that's it. I'm sort of in a weird space because I, I've done, uh, a bit of TV, uh, on, on the sportsman channel. I've done, uh, some, I've done, episodes, uh, some episodes of, uh, guns and ammo TV, which a lot of people aren't even aware that guns and ammo had a TV show and they're in their like 20th season, but I've had people, recognize me from that in airports which is just bizarre so uh then uh some of those people then find out that i write novels and then they ask me to autograph those which are just it's such a surreal feeling because i grew up reading books and idolizing novelists and the fact that i happen to now find myself as one is just it's it's still so bizarre to me and that anyone would even want my autograph and and i still i still joke about it you know sign in a book i say well here you go now it'll be worth some money when i'm dead you know because i can't imagine anyone would want an autograph book for me now but uh it's modesty maybe it's false modesty but um it's it's still just I find myself in pleasant disbelief that uh, I can make a living writing. Okay. Um, have you spotted anybody out in public um, reading one of your books yet? No, I, I have not. And part of what it is, is depending on, on, where you are or who, wh what genre you're in. Um, so many people these days are reading books on their Kindle and then you have no idea what they're reading because you just can see text. Um, I did once uh, spot uh, the, the nonfiction novel that I wrote for, uh, non, excuse me, the nonfiction book the autobiography that I wrote for a buddy of mine, I spotted copies of that in an airport bookstore, which was just really neat. Um, but I haven't yet uh, spotted anybody specifically reading one of, one of my novels, which uh, uh, that will, that will be uh, if, and when that'll be great. Okay. So this is the part where we talk about everything Dane, that James Tarr has written. So can you give us the, uh, the highlight reel of your body of work? <laughs> Excuse me. Sure. Um, I've got a, a number of different series. Uh, the, some of the, the first stuff I wrote, uh, is a series, uh, starring, uh, 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 private investigator John Fault, and it's based. They're based in the Detroit area. Uh, the first one is called Failure Drill. 
And the second one is Splashback. And the third one, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, is Splits and Transitions. And uh, uh, entertaining thrillers, Private Investigator is the main character. And all of the the PI stuff generally is technically accurate while still being entertaining. And uh, set in and around the artful ruin that is modern Detroit. Um, uh, I, I wrote recently a couple of thrillers uh, featuring Dave Anderson. Uh, the first the one is Worrell, which is W-H-O-R-L, which is a kind of fingerprint. And uh, main plot point on that is uh, he applies to the FBI and the FBI finds out that a couple of his fingerprints match some other people. Uh, and hijinks ensue, as they say. And the sequel to that is Waiting for the Kick. Um, the reason why we're here is uh, Bestiary, which is book one in the Echoes of Pangea series. And Bestiary is B-E-S-T-I-A-R-I-I. And in case anyone wonders why it's spelled so weird and perhaps wrong, Bestiary were the gladiators who specialized in fighting the wild animals in the Colosseum. Not other people, but wild animals. And uh, there are three books in that series, uh, Bestiary, Fire and Bone, and uh, The Ghosts of Jacotepec, which uh, Jacotepec is, uh, uh, maybe it was a bad idea on my part, having a word that nobody knows how to spell in the title, but uh, that's uh, X-I-C-O-T-E-P-E-C. Um, and, uh, the biggest, uh, actually the biggest selling book that, uh, I have written is dog soldiers, all one word that, uh, came out in 2020. And that's, uh, sort of a, uh, action adventure novel about a, uh, near future civil war set in America uh, that ha- made me put on my thinking cap as to, uh, what, uh, what things might look like in the near future. And then, uh, the, the, my name's on the cover of carnivore, which is an autobiography of a friend of mine who, uh, did 20 years in the army. And then he did, uh, two tours in Iraq right at the beginning of the war and uh, that was put out by Harper Collins, and uh, uh, it was uh, we had a, we had a good time with that. Uh, the success of that got him on uh, the O'Reilly Factor and interviewed by the New York Post and things like that. While uh, while I just uh, sat in the wings and watched. So he was over there when I was uh, at the early war <laughs> stuff. Fun times, fun times. Um. How did how did you get uh, involved in writing that autobiography? Well, I I started writing for some national magazines, national gun magazines, about fifteen years ago. Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, doing that, I met a lot of really interesting people, and uh, a friend of mine who was another writer had met Dillard Johnson, uh, who's the subject of the autobiography, at, uh, at a media event because he had written a number of articles for Soldier of Fortune magazine back in the day. 
And, uh, and so I met Dillard through my buddy, Dave, and then we started hanging out and we became friends and he, he approached me about, uh, writing his autobiography. And it's interesting because, uh, Dillard, he goes by CJ. He is a fabulous, amazing storyteller. Just, just one of the most natural storytellers you'd ever want to meet, but he can't write worth a lick and he's dyslexic. So I was, I was enthused about writing this, uh, this story because uh it had gotten him on um, a lot of attention he had been on good morning america uh, he he'd ended up doing two tours in iraq and at the time he was busy contracting for blackwater silver star bronze star three purple hearts all of that and so i was really interested in helping him tell the story and i just had to figure out how and i finally figured out that the best way to do it is just talk to him and record him and have him tell his stories and then I did that over a period of 18 months, sometimes in person, sometimes over the phone when he was in Iraq contracting. And I turned it into a uh, novel, uh, turned it into a, a book and um, uh, approached uh, the, uh, an editor at HarperCollins. It was actually Chris Kyle's editor for American Sniper and uh sold it in two days uh it basically i approached him on friday and monday he he contacted me and said yeah we want to represent it which was like i've never seen anything like that and I, i've never seen anything like that since so i just happened to be in the right place at the right time sometimes that's all you need uh while all of that sounds fascinating we're gonna pause for a moment while we shamelessly show for the man across a thousand battlefields and a million wars there is always a question. What do you do when all the chips are on the table? Do you run? Try to find salvation in the arms of an easy peace? Or do you stand and fight and send your enemies into whatever hole they crawled out of? On Deadly Ground, a heroic Last Stand anthology has ten stories addressing that question. Each character faces the impossible in different ways, but all will be tested before the day is done. Can they earn a heroic victory amongst the endless eternity of space, or are they doomed to fall into obscurity? All right, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude, dear listener. Uh, well, obviously, all of that sounds fascinating. We're going to talk about uh, the book that brought us here, which is Bestiary, the first book in the Echoes of Pangea, Pangea series. So where'd you come up with the premise for this uh, universe? Well, I, when it came out, I, I read uh, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, loved it, and the sequel, The Lost World. And then the movies came out, and the movies were, are just more or less garbage. And I, I thought that nobody was really exploring the possibilities of the concept of genetically engineered dinosaurs. and the if you if you look at the science if you research the science you realize with all the cloning and things that they're doing these days them eventually being able to 
create animals that at least look like dinosaurs if aren't if if they don't share some genetic material is is it's not, it's not an if it's a when so there's that and then also the things that really bothered me about the the movies the movie treatments of of his novels were that the dinosaurs they didn't have them acting like actual animals. They had them acting like homicidal human beings, which really bothered me. So I'm like, how can I write a realistic, entertaining novel that features genetically engineered dinosaurs? And I realized it would have to be set in the future uh, at some point, at some point in the, in the, let's call it near future. And uh, then that's how I came up with the the setting for Bestiary, which is in Mexico about 40 years from now. And Mexico at, at the time of the novel has been suffering through nearly two decades of civil war and uh, a civil war that was started by uh, a cartel that sort of morphed into communist guerrillas. And at the start of the war, 20 years before the novel occurs, there and 20 years from now, there was a Jurassic Park type park in northeastern Mexico called Pangea. Uh, the area is very thinly populated right now in the Sierra Madre Oriental Mountains. It's beautiful. There are a lot of biospheres up there. It'd be a great place for a large dinosaur zoo type park. And at the start of the war, the communist guerrillas seeing no better symbolism of the capitalism that they hate attack the Pangea Park. And officially, according to the Mexican government, all of the dinosaurs were killed. Uh, truth is, uh, a whole bunch of them uh, escaped the park and for 20 years have been breeding in the wild in Mexico. So fast forward 20 years and Americans don't want to see American lives uh, being wasted in fighting this this war in Mexico. However, there's no way an American government would want a communist government sharing a 2,000-mile border with it. So America is busy helping Mexico fight the war with private contractors. So that's the, the quick and dirty background. And the book starts with a helicopter full of a small group of uh, people, some private contractors, a... Uh, a Mexican national who is, she's a, uh, a biology graduate student. You have a, uh, a hotel executive and his high school aged son, and they are going down to Mexico to do big game hunting of the dinosaurs that officially don't exist, but that everybody knows that they're down there. And they're flying down to the base, to the contractor's base in Mexico, when the helicopter goes down in the remote mountains. And then the, the disparate group of people uh, basically goes on the run through the mountains, being pursued by both gorillas and the dinosaur wildlife in the mountains. And that's, that is the first book right there. 
proving yet again why you don't take tourist trips to places that aren't safe. People still do it, though, and it amazes me every time. So before we dive in too deep onto the specifics of, of bestiary, can you give us like an age range for the story? Like at what age could dinosaur lovers, the parents thereof, uh, allow this to be read? Well, okay. I deliberately, I, I, had start, I started writing the book and then I'm like, you know what? This, this should be PG 13. So it's, it's a PG 13 rating. Uh, if you include some profanity and of course there's gunfights and bloody dinosaur attacks, I will say that the, the main character in the book is a, a veteran private contractor, uh, by the name of Seamus O'Malley. He's, uh, an Irishman by trade and a British army veteran. Uh, I've got a, a buddy of mine that I know who's actually a British Army veteran, and he was my British Army technical advisor on the book. And if any of you have ever met a veteran of the British Armed Forces, you will know that one of their favorite words that they use almost in every sentence is a four-letter word that starts with the letter C. So if I was going to be completely technically accurate, the dialogue in this book would definitely not be child-friendly. So I decided to perhaps <laughs> tone it down a bit from, from the, the realism of the way British Army veterans talk. I uh, Funny you say that. Uh, I'm actually going through that right now. I'm writing a story that involves uh, Australian forces that use some of those same words and if i wrote some of what they use as just common parlance amazon would censor the heck out of it so yeah i, I feel you i feel you so all right we're gonna show this cover uh that got me interested so can you tell us the story of this cover and how you came up with with this piece of art because it is amazing um yeah, well, that's this is actually a reissue. Re Bestiary first came out in 2018. I self-published it. It was picked up recently by Theogony Books, Chris Kennedy Publishing. And I have a copy of the original cover here. I don't know if anybody will be able to see it. It just is a very, oh, I'm going the wrong way, just very simple stark uh, got a lot of attention but there's not much color there a buddy of mine who is a graphic artist and that's an actual uh, allosaurus claw right there uh, on the cover and of course if you're going to have a book about dinosaurs you need to have dinosaurs in the book and of course everybody always thinks of the velociraptor and the t-rex and i will say that there is a t-rex in the book however I will point out that in the real world, the Velociraptor is the size of a turkey. Now, Michael Crichton is a really smart dude. So I know for a fact he had to know that the Velociraptor was not as large as he made them in the book and how they made them in the movie. However, the raptors that were that big had the name Ovaraptor, which doesn't sound nearly as cool or scary as Velociraptor. But uh, in the book, I've got a number of different dinosaurs, T-Rex, Ankylosaurus, um, and on the cover right there, that is an Allosaurus. And there is a scene where our group on the run finds themselves in a small valley that has a very 
nice microclimate and they run into a bit of uh, the native wildlife, shall we say, and that is a representative of one of those scenes. Okay. Uh, definitely interested enough that I'll be looking for this audiobook. So let's move on to the story itself. What would your 30-second elevator pitch be? Private contractors and a group of civilians on the run through the mountains of Mexico being chased by communist guerrillas and dinosaurs. Meanwhile, both the Mexican government and the private contractor army are trying to tr both track them down and find the leader of the guerrilla forces who happens to be in the area. Okay. And what is it you think that makes this book um, uh, and the series, the, the Pangea series, what do you think makes it special? I've, I've looked over, I've read a lot of fiction that, that features dinosaurs and almost none of it is, you can find some stuff that's entertaining provided that you shut your brain off at the door or shut your brain off once you turn the cover, but trying to find novels that feature genetically engineered dinosaurs that are both entertaining and technically accurate, your choices are slim and none. And that's what I've written. Uh, I went to a lot of trouble to make sure that, that one, that the, the animals in the book, whether they're dinosaurs or a, a, the native fauna in Mexico, that they act like actual real world animals but also that, that they behave in a natural way and that everything about the book is technically accurate. I, I did so much research finding, you know, and it's out there. I mean, when I first wrote Bestiary, that was when people were first discovering and realizing that a lot of these dinosaurs, in fact, were not scaly lizards, but had feathers or feather precursors. If you do the research, you'll find out that dinosaurs aren't necessarily cold-blooded. Maybe none of them were cold-blooded. They weren't necessarily warm-blooded, but doing research is when you find out that there's no such thing as just hot-blooded or warm-blooded or cold-blooded. There's a whole range of different metabolisms in the middle there that I was completely unaware of until I started doing the research. So people are going to be entertained because there's a lot of action in the books, but all of it to the best of my ability is completely technically accurate. So nobody will have to hang their brain up on a, on a coat hook before sitting down and reading the book. Okay. Which, which tropes do you feel like you hit the best? <laughs> um, well, there, the whole thing with the, with the dinosaurs chasing people, people, People want that, even if it's unrealistic or it's crazy or whatever. But you need to, to a certain extent, you need to give people what they want. So 
if they want a T-Rex attacking people, you have to come up with a situation where realistically that is something that could happen. And trying to invent that situation was a, a lot of fun and involved a lot of imagination and invention and some, some hours thinking, but uh, you know, you've got the, 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 the dinosaurs just, the big, well, I guess the main thing that I did was try to disabuse the readers of some of the, the bad tropes from the movies and it, make the books entertaining while presenting s things that aren't so ridiculous as if the, the dinosaurs were created out of the DNA of sauropods and serial killers, if you get what I'm saying. Okay. Well, with at least with Michael Crichton, the, the get out of jail free card was they were genetically altered to be that way. Right. To make them more exactly. entertaining. Um, and so, you know, as long as you give a plausible reason to be different, I think it works. Um, did you, I don't know when it came out. So, you know, it might've been after your time, but do you remember like, did you watch Dinotopia as a kid too, to feed that sort uh, of love of the, no, I, uh, I I don't think I was in the right age group for that. I know I've heard of it, but I have not watched it. Okay. Sort of had that same, um, you know, Forgotten Valley kind of effect to it. Um, yeah. I know it's yeah. it's not exactly, but that was kind of the vibe they went for. Um, so I was going to ask if any of that kind of stuff was part of your inspiration, but clearly not if you haven't read it. So... Obviously, this is what well, it's action adventure because you know you've got the military running and gunning against the dinosaurs. But what genre would you put this in? And that's that is the the question. I would I would say that it's science fiction because it's you know set forty years in the future and you have genetically engineered monsters or well you want to call them monsters genetically engineered animals. And you have uh, the contractors using some next generation technology and weapons. So I, I would call it near future sci-fi. Okay, works for me. Uh, now let's talk about the story itself. Um, obviously, you mentioned that there was a little bit of a cast of characters in this, this novel, in this series. But what can you tell us about this specifically your main character or characters? Like, what do you think makes them unique in the crowded field of speculative fiction? Well, in, in a lot of modern entertainment, you have private contractors only portrayed as bad guys, first off. And uh, in, in Bestiary, the main character is a private contractor who is a, a professional soldier and he's been doing it for his whole career. And not only that, he, he loves his job. And that's, that's like the opposite of what you see in so many movies and TV shows. And that in part comes from my personal experience. I know, I know a lot of guys who actually contracted for a living and they, for a number of years, at least when private contracting was hot and they were patriots and they, 
They loved their country. They were professional soldiers. They just happened to get out of the U.S. military and do it for a private corporation. But most of the corporations were contracted to the Department of Defense. So in a roundabout way, they were just doing the exact same job just for more money. So in in part, the, the main character of Seamus O'Malley is different because he's not only is he just a private contract professional soldier, but he loves his job. And so even as they are scrambling for their very lives through the mountains of Mexico, being pursued by bloodthirsty uh, communist guerrillas who like to torture and or rape the people that they catch, he's having a great time and is just naturally a smartass, which, of course, pisses off the people that he's with and are trying to protect because they're all terrified because they're coming at it from a completely different perspective. Okay. What about any secondary characters? Uh, do you have any of them that were especially memorable to you? When I originally thought of this story, I thought the the main character would be Roger Rudd and his son, Michael. Roger Rudd is the, the guy that owns a high-end hotel chain. And for his son, Michael's high school graduation present, he takes him down to Mexico for a big game hunting trip and they're going to be hunting dinosaurs. And they end up not being the main character, just supporting cast. But I think that that is their characters are informative because they they no matter who you are, there's there's somebody in the group of characters that are in that helicopter that goes down that you can identify with. Roger Rudd is an executive and uh, he's used to working in an office and he gets injured in the crash and he's terrified as a normal person would be running through the mountains. His son is young, inexperienced, worried for his dad, worried because they're getting uh, chased by uh, people and uh, unseen animals. And so it, it, the, you know, even though Seamus is a professional soldier, he's not a Superman, but even though he and the other contractors are there having some more human uh, characters with which the reader can identify, I think make Michael and Roger stand out because the, the reader to one point or another can identify with one of them. Okay. Um, obviously, you know, this is a man versus nature kind of story because they're, you know, I don't want to say bad guy, but the uh, antagonist is definitely the dinosaurs in the valley. But were there other um, bad guys that your characters have to face without spoilers, obviously? Well, the, you know, the background story is, you know, the Mexican uh government and military with the assistance of private contractors that are basically being paid for by the American government have for 20 years been waging a, a guerrilla war, a war against the guerrillas. And depending on who you ask, either the Mexican government is days from falling or the communist guerrillas are days from surrendering. And the, the country is just so war-torn that um, 
that oh my god now i forgot your question could you repeat your question i know where i was going i just forgot where i'm going so the bad guys who who are the bad guys without giving okay. away any spoilers right so the and part of the part of the struggle for the the mexican and american combined forces part of the struggle for them is they have been trying to locate the head of the 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 guerrillas organization the guerrilla army uh timoteo and they have for 20 years they've been trying to find him and the he is the now while the the characters are of course uh it's man against nature man against the 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 people that are the soldiers that are actually chasing them but at the end of the day the head of the guerrilla army Timoteo becomes aware of this group on the run through the mountains and he gets involved which then brings in the greater government forces at large and enlarges the conflict in the book. Okay. So, you know, you've described some, some very gnarly situations that you put your characters through. Um, so if your characters knew who you were, that you were James Tarr, the creator of their torment, uh, and that you had written the trials and tribulations that they had to go through, how do you see that interaction playing out if you ever met them in a dark alley? Well, that that's, do you really think that's a fair question? I mean, you're basically crashing them into remote mountainside where some of them get injured and then all of them then go uh, on the run, they are involved in a, a lengthy days long running gun battle against communist guerrillas and bloodthirsty animals on their scent. I, I would be lucky to get out of that dark alley with my life. Okay. Um, since we talked about characters, when you write, do you have a favorite character archetype? I, yes, and I, I guess it, it, it springs from uh, my favorite movie of all time, which I saw at a very impressionable young age in the theater. Uh, I, uh, I rode my bike five miles to the Hampton Theater and bought a ticket. I was 14 years old. And I bought a ticket for a PG movie. I have no recollection what that PG movie was. But then I snuck into Blade Runner. Uh, and Blade Runner Final Cut is my favorite movie. So um, between that movie and then a career in law enforcement and private investigation, my my favorite archetype has got to be the, the hard-bitten, down-on-his-luck uh, detective, uh, world-weary uh fighting the good fight uh even though uh he can't seem to catch a break okay so given um let, let's take a, a sneak peek behind the curtain so were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from bestiary that even if they went in other you know future novels <clears throat> 
I I didn't have to cut anything from from bestiary. I I did get uh, I've gotten a little bit of feedback. You know, I again I first put it out in 2018 and it was reissued this past year, and uh, a whole new audience has discovered it. And when I put out it, put out the first book the first time, the only complaint I really heard was people that had been hoping to see uh, a certain dinosaur, uh, certain, you know, cause a lot of guys, they love dinosaurs and they've, a lot of times they have a favorite dinosaur. And if I didn't have it in the book, I heard about it. So the fact that, uh, I wrote, uh, two sequels gave me opportunity to have, uh, additional scenes with varying different, dinosaurs that didn't appear in the first book uh in the first book of course you've got uh, allosaurus and a t-rex and an ankylosaurus uh but there's uh there's no uh um triceratops and so i put a triceratops in the second book as well as uh, a number of including uh, uh the the climax in the second book fire and bone uh features a mating pair of brachiosaurus brachiosauri it's probably brachiosauri but i'm gonna embarrass myself and then in the third book the ghosts of jacotepec uh you know everyone even though technically the velociraptor is the size of a turkey people don't just want a raptor they want a big scary bloodthirsty raptor and uh, the biggest raptor was Utah Raptor. It makes the Velociraptors in the movies look small. And so for the third book, the climax of the third book, I introduced Utah Raptors. Uh, and uh, um, a lot of people were very, uh, very happy about that. Yeah, there's actually... Um... There's actually a, a short story out there by Joe uh, Vasicek who wrote uh, Utah about riding a Utah Raptor into battle. Uh, it's sort of a <laughs> alt history novel, which always like that was basically jousting, but your ride was a dinosaur that would eat you if you fell off. Um, so well, speaking of favorite dinosaurs. The, the Utah Raptor was somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 pounds and of course, they, they they don't know how fast they could move, but running on two legs, they estimate that they can do 30 miles an hour. So it's something the weight of a small car that goes faster than you can go on a bicycle and eats things the size of horses or people for a living, you know. So uh, just imagine that in a realistic terrifying setting and that's that's what i tried to try to give the readers and uh they a lot of them seem to be pretty happy with the payoff in the third book which is the the ghosts of jacotepec nice nice so do you have a favorite dinosaur yourself we're not answering whether it's in the novel just do you have a favorite i guess my favorites has to be the triceratops uh it's it's just that one is so it, it's just so distinctive i mean those three horns the the bony the bony frill it's you know 
even though it's not a fast or not a predator, just because it's so distinctive and so cool looking, so cool looking and such a quintessential dinosaur that the trike is, is my favorite. That's tied right up there with the stegosaurus for me for the same iconic reasons. Okay. So uh, you have excellent taste, sir. So you mentioned, you mentioned a little bit about the, the worlds that the story takes place. Do you cover how they managed to, I mean, well, first off, is the dinosaur Valley, like, is it known that these things were there or is it no. forgotten? Like, well, the, the dinosaurs, because they've been, uh, first off, nobody knew how many escaped from the park or what species, because for years and years and years, the official story from both Mexico and the U.S. government was that all of them died in the attack. So they have been out in the wild and breeding. And so there are occasional uh sightings here and there of various animals various species but they're they're spread out you know as as animals do they tend to spread out and get their own uh territory during the course of their uh run through the mountains the characters stumble across a small valley that's got a microclimate where there are a large number of dinosaurs of various species. Uh, however, there are dinosaurs all over uh, northern, northeastern and even central Mexico in the book. It's just they're, they're hard to spot usually, but uh, as, the, as the characters find their way into this uh, valley that's got a microclimate, including a lot of Fog, which uh, keeps the tends to keep the animal fog and vegetation, which tend to keep the animals hidden from aerial surveillance and what is basically a war zone. Um, and there's a, there's a full size ankylosaurus in there. There are a there's the uh, nearly grown allosaur. There are um, uh, protoceratops, which are small. Uh, horned uh, things about the size of big pigs uh, and a number of other massospondylus, which are um, uh, herbivores. And uh, it's just, it, it gave me that, that valley with the microclimate gave me an opportunity to uh, introduce a large number of dinosaurs in a compact space in a, in a realistic uh, setting. So did you get to take lots of cool trips as you were planning this one and mark it off as research? Honest, honey, that museum is science for work. Um, I, I, I didn't specifically not for this. Uh, I, I have made three trips to Mexico, at least three trips, when I was younger. And when I was younger, at one point, I was nearly fluent in Spanish. So you'll see a, a bit of Spanish in the book. Uh, that I uh, went to great pains to make sure was technically accurate, including the uh, the Mexican profanity, um, because Mexican profanity is different than Spanish profanity, which is different from Cubans profanity. Just just ask them. Um, and uh, so uh, just 
falling back on my memories of, of the places that I've been to Mexico really informed me. And then especially for the second book, Fire and Bone, which most of it is set in uh, Cancun and in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, I distinctly remember the the couple of trips that I took there. In fact, uh, going to uh, Chichen Itza, uh, the pyramid there, uh, it was just fabulous. I, I highly recommend it. But uh, when I was writing Fire and Bone, I would have loved to have gone back down there, but it was the height of COVID. So, no. That would put a damper in things. So is there anything else that you want to tell us about the, the world where this story takes place that we need to know um, to sort of get into this, this adventure? Well, because I tried to do everything in a believable fashion, you, you have to consider just how badly off a Mexico would be after 20 years of civil war. Already right now, Mexico is sparsely populated in a lot of places. They have lost a significant percentage of their population to uh, immigration to other countries, most specifically the U.S. And so uh, having characters and dinosaurs uh, wandering unmolested through northern Mexico, northeastern Mexico, which is some of the already most thinly populated areas of the country, would be perfectly understandable. And uh, that uh, it makes for a much more, I think, fun and enjoyable novel when you realize that the so many of those areas right now are almost devoid of people that after 20 years of fewer people and dinosaurs, it would be quite an adventure just uh, hiking through those mountains. Okay. So Bestiary is clearly part of a series because we've talked about it. Um, you, there are currently three books out in this universe, but is their story done? Can we expect more? Th this story arc it, it's probably it, it's done. However, I do have plans to do a prequel that uh, takes place at the at the park, the Pangea Park, uh, right about the time when it's operating and through the time when it gets attacked by the gorillas. And that would be the, I guess the the seed of all the subsequent stories is what happens right there in this prequel when the park gets attacked by the gorillas and so many of the dinosaurs escape into the wild. Uh, that is that is on my to-do list, um, uh, but it's gonna be a, a little little ways down the road. Right now I'm, I'm finishing up a, another trilogy that's, uh, I call it a zombie trilogy, but it's a it's a man-made virus that uh, they're not the undead. It just produces zombie-like symptoms. You know, like uh, you know, if if you don't like dinosaurs, chances are you like zombies, right? Yep. So, um, you mentioned this is near future. It's only forty years in the future. Is most of the technology they're using, the firearms, the equipment, the same that we would recognize, or did you come up with any miracle inventions in the next forty years that? aid the story i 
I I talked to a number of people that uh, that are actually in the industry, and part of what the situation is is America is fighting a proxy war. They are using private contractors to fight the war. So the private contractors don't necessarily have the best top of the line equipment. They pretty much everything that they're using is stuff that's out now or stuff that's already on the drawing board. Uh, I had an idea. I had an idea for a specific type of ammunition in there. And, um, uh, I put it in there thinking, hey, th- wouldn't wouldn't it be cool if th- cool if uh, something like this existed? It, it would make sense, you know. And uh, I happen to be friends with someone who runs a an ammunition company, uh, actually, and he does a lot of specialized contract work for special forces. And he he talked. He was talking to me one day about the book. He's like, you know, this uh, this ammunition you're talking about here. Uh, it, it, it actually already exists. I'm like, okay, well, Hey, then my proof of concept, then, then my brain was working as I was thinking ahead as to what we might have in the near future. So that was actually sort of a big ego boost. Nice. Nice. So of all the dinosaurs that you involved with, I, I don't know if you can answer this without spoilers, but, but we'll try out of all the dinosaurs that you had brought back for this, uh, this adventure, which one would you think would be cool to actually have at like a zoo? Boy, that's that's a tough one because some of the most interesting ones are the ones where you'd be most likely to be killed by and I don't know if you'd want that. Would you want would you want a predator or would you want something that uh, you could uh, grab a branch and and feed uh, vegetation to uh i uh, again as the triceratops uh is my uh is my favorite i would love to see a triceratops triceratops in a zoo because uh all you would need to keep it penned up is a low wall so people would be able to get really close to it Probably you'd be able to uh, get involved in feeding it some in some way, uh, feeding it leaves or vegetation or whatever. If not directly, then then you know throwing it over the fence or something like that. A way to get the the visitors and the and the kids involved. Um, sure, everyone would love to see a, a full size T Rex, but uh, you can't exactly show your three year old a t-rex disemboweling a a live uh horse uh without uh, causing nightmares you know absolutely so this one this novel actually has you know creatures in it that don't exist in the form of the dinosaurs so i would imagine when you wrote those you tried to let as much as we understand of their physiology and biology inform the way they were written so let's not talk specifically about the the bestiary series. In general, when you go about creating your your fantastical creatures or your aliens, how do you do it? Do you let Mother Nature inspire you, myths, legends, and lore? Uh, are you inspired by your n- nightmares, or do you just make stuff up out of whole cloth? I I don't make stuff up. I I might be inspired by the real world and then go from there. Um, 
And it's, it's interesting to, you know, to take a seed of an idea and water it and see where it goes in, in bestiary, uh, not only do the animals escape from the park, but the, the people that, that created the park also brought back a lot of uh, paleolithic uh, flora, uh, plants, um, uh, and, and uh, different uh, things that, uh, that the dinosaurs and the creatures of that era would have eaten, which makes sense. And those are actually spreading out into the ecosystem as well, which is a concern for the, for the scientists uh, of that day. But one of the things I also have in bestiary is the huge uh, dragonflies and butterflies that we saw that were real and existed back in the Paleolithic era. And thinking about, you know, you, I, I had those in the book and then the, it, it led me down a rabbit hole why do those insects, why do those huge insects not exist today? And nobody knows for sure, but the what they think is it's because that back in the day during the Jurassic period or whatever, the oxygen content of the atmosphere was much higher. That makes a difference because insects the the uh, butterflies griffin flies dragonflies they don't have lungs they don't breathe with lungs they just take air in through holes in their body and the movement of their body brings in the oxygen and so at a certain point they can only get so big before their body can't bring enough oxygen to support it so that led me down a rabbit hole. So did, what did the, if I've got those giant insects in my park, what did the genetic engineers do to them? What would they have to do to them to get them to survive in our lower oxygen atmosphere? And so, like I said, I, I take a, I start with a, a, a grain of truth and then like start trying to, follow it down fictional rabbit holes, which has always been very entertaining. And I hope the, the, the readers uh, find it interesting as well. Okay. That's actually, you know, studying dinosaurs has taught us more about than we thought about climate as well. They found a, uh, the skeletal remains or, well, the remains of a lizard that, that lived in Central America that was as big around as a Volkswagen bus and as long as a standard bus. And they said that ba because we know this specific creature was warm, or excuse me, was cold-blooded, in order for it to exist at the size it was, like the temperature we thought during that period, like what we thought the degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius was, was like a few degrees, would have had to been a few degrees higher to support this creature, which of course messes with all the climate models too. Um, so it's right. interesting and, how we keep learning. And, and if you get really interested in dinosaurs, that's another rabbit hole to, to follow down because there are hundreds and hundreds of species that have been discovered. And, you know, 
people think of dinosaurs as these huge things, but the, the average dinosaur was somewhere between the size of a dog and a horse. And they weren't all cold blooded and they lived in every kind of climate that you can imagine. And I mean, they were far more prolific in numbers around the world, perhaps even than humans are today. And the, the fact that we probably only know a fraction of a percent of what of what was really living back in the day, because think of all of the things that had to go just right for an animal to die where we could recover its fossilized skeleton and realize that that is just a a, a just the it, it's like catching a fastball. Uh, uh, with uh, with a blindfold on, and the fact that we've recovered so many skeletons, fossilized skeletons of dinosaurs, uh, means that they just must have been all over every continent in just um, in unbelievable numbers. If you want a show like that, that that talks a little bit about how, what would happen if you brought dinosaurs back that is kid appropriate, since this one isn't, dear listener, I, if you've got Netflix, Camp Cretaceous, it's set in the Jurassic Park world or Jurassic World world, and it basically takes place between the movies about a camp that's there that had, you know, the beta session of campers going through this camp on Jurassic Park, the new world. And then as they're abandoning, the kids get forgotten and it's their story, but it's, it's cartoon and it's kid friendly. Uh, if you're looking for good dinosaur content for them, because you know, the future generation of little boys needs to be, uh, needs to be taught about the dinosaurs or girls. There, you know, there's no reason the little girls can't like dinosaurs, but clearly this is uh, winding down. Cause if we keep going, we might bore the readers and uh, talk all night about the coolness of dinosaurs. Was there anything about bestiaries or the echoes of Pangeus? Pangea series that I didn't ask that you want to tell us? I don't think so. One, uh, what I would recommend those, one of the things that I did doing research for Bissieri uh, was I went to the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. And if you, if you Google pictures of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, you'll see that there is a giant dinosaur erupting from the side of the building. It is, if you are a dinosaur lover and have, or you have children who love dinosaurs, I highly recommend going there because uh, it's I've dinosaurs all, uh, it's, it's just, it's great. I highly recommend it. And I actually, while I was there, I talked to some of the curators who have backgrounds and I asked them what research materials they recommended um, uh, and uh, for, for just and uh, they recommended a couple of books and uh, I grabbed those and a few others. And at the end of Bestiary, uh, I, I list some of my reference materials, some of which is uh, great for kids and some of which is very dry technical stuff. Um, uh, but, but, the the stuff for, for kids, you know, uh, you know, you've got these, uh, encyclopedia dinosaurs and, and things like that, where on every page you can find, uh, full color illustrations of dinosaurs. And there is, there's no better way to keep a kid's attention than to show him cool pictures of dinosaurs while you're reading, uh, reading to him in bed. 
Absolutely. Uh, so the Bestiary series, and more specifically the the Echoes of Pangea, it's available in ebook, obviously, and I saw that it had a print copy. Is it an audiobook as well? Yes. Uh, the audiobook of Bestiary uh, just dropped on April 11th. The uh, audiobook of Fire and Bone, the second book, uh, the recording is done, I believe is coming out uh it should be out by the time this podcast drops. And then they're doing the audiobook of uh, The Ghosts of Jukotepec as well. And I think that's going to come out in June. So uh, if, you, if you're one of those people that doesn't have time to actually read a book, but uh, you, listen, you listen to audiobooks uh, in the cartoon from work or uh, whatever, um, B-Series is available now. And Fire and Bone, by the time you're hearing this, will be available as well. Outstanding. All right. And uh, before we let you go, dear listener, this is the part where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So if you love dinosaurs and you love this book, tell the world, tell a friend, tell two friends, tell 10 friends. I don't care. Tell the world. Uh, And with that being said, uh, James, can you tell listeners how they can find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, I do my best to keep it current, but you can find me at uh, www.officialjamestar.com. That's tar with two R's. Um, If you uh, track down Bestiary on Amazon and click on my name, it will take you to my author page, which has a list of uh, every book I've been involved with as well. Uh, So that those are the two best ways to uh, track down what's uh, what's new and cool from me. Okay, and uh, that'll all be linked in the show notes, dear listener. Um, so you can find us on our Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We have a Facebook page that Doc will eventually get around to giving us a dedicated URL just as soon as enough of you like, share, and, and do the things. Uh, I don't manage that one. She does. So we'll just have to keep nagging her until she gets around to it. Uh, we have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. And it is very much appreciated. These shows aren't free to produce. The overhead is not huge, but it's there. So we appreciate everything uh, you guys do to make that happen. Or you could support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink coffee until their liver explodes. And with that being said, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the aforementioned Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley. And this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. So uh, we appreciate you coming on the show, uh, James. This was this was great. I appreciate you having me. I had a good time. All right.